Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 8. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. So open up your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there is a pew Bible in front of you. Grab that and uh, open that up, because we're going to be looking at these uh, four verses in, in great detail this morning. Before we begin, we're going to read our passage, Romans 8, verse 5 through 8, together. God's Word. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, in a dark moment, as you're struggling with sin, you might cry out, man, these thoughts, they just keep coming, they just keep coming and coming. I just, I wish they would just go away. And it's easy to feel like your thoughts, your passions, your motivations, they're somehow uncontrollable. That they all just happen inside your mind and you're just somehow along for the ride. It's easy to think this way because it's how many of us live. How many of you are sitting down to work and then you look up and 30 minutes have passed and you don't even know what you've been doing the last 30 minutes? Or am I the only one who struggles with that? And today, unlike 20 years ago, we have instant access to let our minds wander in whatever direction pops into our head, don't we? You want to check the scores of the sport game from last night? Easy, right? You want to see what your high school friends are doing from 35 years ago? No problem. Go to Facebook. You got it. You aren't sure what the best home decor colors are for 2023, and there's going to be a list or two on the internet. Want to see how terrible people are who disagree with you politically? There's news to cater to whatever your preference is. And even if we are being productive, working in the yard, doing some household chores, isn't it easy to let some previous argument, some unresolved conflict, fester in your mind and you repeat to yourself again and again, the conversation. See, the problem isn't that we think. It's that we don't realize, Christian, we can control our thoughts. Our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, these aren't just things that happen to us. We can direct our thinking. We know that this is the case because we see several times in our passage, in fact, five times in four short verses, the phrase, the simple phrase, to set your mind. We're encouraged five times in this text. You can just read it, look, and look for those, that phrase, set your mind, set your mind. It's repeated five times. And this setting of your mind is not just thinking. To set the mind is to think, to reason, to understand, to desire, and even sometimes to feel. We're told we can't always control those things by the world. But here in this text, we get another picture. We get a picture of Christians who actively aim to set their minds on things that honor Christ, who speak to their feelings to focus on what is true, right, and God-glorifying rather than just following whatever rabbit trail pops up. That's why Paul uses the same phrase, set your mind, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. You can listen as I read Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. 
Now, now, some read that and they think, does this mean that we can never pursue any earthly interest? That we always have to be heavenly minded? That we can never mull over a soured relationship and figure out how we can best reconcile that? That we can never look up sporting events? That we can never consider what the best colors are to paint your house? That's not what this text means. But it does mean that you can control where your mind goes, that you can control what you desire, that you can repent of always thinking that you're right in your head. Back in Romans 8, 5 through 8, in our passage here, it's written to help us figure out how we can set our minds to glorify God. Paul helpfully sets up a contrast of of mindsets here. He identifies what it looks like inside the Christian mind and then what it looks like inside the unbeliever's mind. And, And as we look at this contrast, we'll be able to identify this morning three ways to take control of your thoughts. So our outline this morning, we're going to consider three ways to take control of your thoughts. These are three ways that Christians can learn to identify your patterns of thinking and to actually change, to actually change what's keeping you tied to whatever feelings or thoughts pop up, and how to change for God's glory and your good. Now, sometimes before we begin a discussion and and think through these these particular issues in a passage, we have to pull the car over, metaphorically speaking here. So we're going to pull the car over, and we're not going to focus on controlling your thoughts. I want you to get something in the big picture. So we are going to remember that Romans 8 comes right after Romans 7. Great, good job. Math is excellent in this house. So Romans 7, and as we studied Romans 7, Romans 7 reminded us that every Christian should be perfect, right? Did you guys read Romans 7? No, absolutely not. You should not be perfect. And we remember that as we studied Romans 7, the whole point of Romans 7 was to say, Paul's essentially saying, I do what I don't want to do. I continue to struggle as a Christian. I'm not perfect, but I still aim for what glorifies God. That's the whole point of Romans 7. Not to pretend like we're perfect, but to recognize that Christians are those who recognize our need for growth and then try and change. It tells us that we are to live a life where we constantly learn to see our sin so we can turn and follow God. And so it is today with learning to control your thoughts. We're going to be learning how to recognize our weaknesses and then aim to control our thoughts to glorify God. We're going to learn these lessons by looking at a stark contrast between the freedom that Christians have to control our minds and emotions and desires and our impulses and the unbeliever who follows just the flow of the flesh. The passage doesn't describe a weak and a strong Christian. It gives us a stark contrast between the Christian and a non-Christian. So that's kind of pulling the car side over. We're going to look at that. But as we look at this passage, we're going to start with looking at our first way to control our thoughts. Number one, discern the aim of your habits. Discern the aim of your habits. Now, to be alive is to enjoy some sort of routine. God designed us to have regular patterns of rest, to go to sleep and get up around the same time, to develop good hygiene habits. He designed us to thrive in the predictable. That's why kids thrive when they know what to expect, when parents follow through on the various routines that we give our children. It's why our neighbor kids, who we sometimes take to Awana, are eager to share about their day when they ride with us in the car. In fact, one time when someone else was in the car and began to start a different conversation than sharing about their days, one of the children interrupted us and said, hey, you know what, Pastor Ben, remember to ask about our day. I want to share something that I want to thank God for, and I want to share something that I learned today in school. Okay, we'll make sure we get to that, right? Why? They love habits. They love routines. To be human is to have and even to enjoy habits. And although quite a few of our habits aren't explicitly Christian, we can still learn to do them, do our habits, for the glory of God. 
For example, some focus on eating good food purely for the health benefits. Think, I want to lose weight. I want to get this healthy. I want to do that thing. And you think, I got to eat these, this food for health benefits. Some of you focus on eating good foods for the taste benefits, right? You're like, I love that thing, and that's what I'm going to eat. Christians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tells us, eat and drink and do whatever we do for the what? Glory of God. We want to eat in moderation. We want to enjoy good-tasting food. And we do it all giving thanks to who? God who gave us the food. That's why most Christians habitually do what before meals? We pray. That's not a time to repeat a rote prayer and just go on and do your day without even thinking about what you just did. That's a time where we can actually think about what we're about to do, what God has given us, and aim to even eat to the glory of God. I think Paul's point is simple in verse 5. The habits of your life have a lot to do with where you set your mind, and vice versa. Paul starts with describing the unbeliever in the beginning of verse 5. Read that with me. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, what does it mean to live? It means simply to direct your life, to develop habits, ways of doing things, and everything that you do is to live, right? Another word for the Bible loving, that the Bible loves to use for live is the word walk. In fact, he just used that in verse 4. Christians are those who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. And that's a great example of what it means to live, because everybody, if you are alive and you are healthy, walk. We don't live in a walking culture, so we're not kind of walking throughout our day necessarily. We'll probably spend a lot of time sitting, but you still walk to go to the bathroom. You still walk to go somewhere in your house. You still walk from your car to wherever you need to go. And so to walk is to engage in the habits that we all have in life. And if your life, your, your habits, how you do what you do reflect the flesh, then where does your mind go according to verse 5? It goes to the flesh. It's very clear. For those who live and have those habits according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, now what is that word flesh? That word flesh means sinful, worldly, God-rejecting system that we see in this world. The flesh is not just the physical as if there's nothing good in the physical world. I mean, heaven is called what? A new creation. God, in Genesis 1, when he sees his physical creation, he says it was very good. And so we see that physicality is not bad. But Paul's point here is if your life, your habits, your desires are dominated by things like going with the flow, doing whatever you want, regular habitual sin, never thinking about how the mundane can be done for the glory of God, then your habits reflect the sinful flesh, the sinful ways of doing and living. But Christians, Christians don't have to be dominated by those sinful desires. We don't have to be dominated by sinful thoughts that seem to constantly pop up in our minds. We can't live a life devoted to the flesh. Because to be a Christian is to die to the flesh and live a new life in Christ. That's the duality that we see all throughout Romans. In fact, go back to Romans 6, verse 6 and 7. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that is, with Christ. And why did we have to be dying to ourself? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What's another word for body? Flesh, right? The fleshliness of our sin might be brought to nothing, might end so that we may no longer be enslaved to that fleshiness of sin. 4 verse 7 says, one who has died has been set free from sin. If we die to self and are united with Christ, we have been set free from sin. And so go back to Romans 8, verse 5. It says very clearly, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
but those who live according to the Spirit. Set their minds on things of the Spirit. There's a duality there. If you're living in the flesh, pursuing fleshly habits, then your mind is going to stay where? In the flesh. But the opposite is also true, right? But those, verse 5 says, who live according to the Spirit, which is everyone who's a Christian, sets their mind on the things of the Spirit. And the issue again, what is it that marks your life? What are the habits that you formed in your life? Are they the type of habits that glorify God? Do the habits of your life evidence God, the Holy Spirit, working? Or could any unbeliever live your life and not feel uncomfortable? You see, Christians are those who live according to the Spirit, have habits according to the Spirit, and then set their mind on the things of the Spirit. You can tell a lot about your ability to take control of your thoughts based on the habits that you see in your life. So an application is simple. Discern the aim or the direction of your habits, the trajectory of where your habits take you. See, what are the greatest priorities in your life? What do you drop everything else to make sure happens? Might it be time with your phone, a kid's activity? Perhaps it's turning on the news channel in the background most of the day. Maybe it's church. Perhaps care group too. Maybe it's quiet times. Listen, we're all a work in progress, but as you do the mundane habits of life, we need to be intentional about doing them for the glory of God. And we need to be intentional about forming habits to glorify God. So can I challenge you? If you're married here today, spend some time and ask each other what the habits of your life reveal. Spend some time thinking about reorienting your habits. Now, you might be asking, what does forming habits have to do with controlling your thought life? And Paul says very clearly here, a ton. He says, based on the trajectory of your habits, your pattern of life, that's where your mind is going to spend a ton of time. So read verse 5 with that in mind again. For those who live, who habitually live according to the flesh, well, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who habitually live according to the Spirit, well, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, to set, uh, cement this idea, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7, the end of Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there were seasons of my childhood that I clearly remember having a one-tracked mind. There was times when I would do nothing but eat, think, and sleep on baseball. Literally had a baseball in my bed, right? I did nothing but think about that virtually. At times, I thought about honoring God with baseball, but that was very rare. Honestly, it was an idol in my life. As we get older, we realize our lives have a lot bigger things than our favorite sport, or maybe video games if you're young, or having fun with friends. But what we have the habit of doing often occupies a lot of our mental energy. Habits and redirecting your thoughts, they go hand in hand. Habits and learning to speak truth to your emotions, they go together. Habits and reorienting your desires are very much connected. And so you want to gain control of your thoughts? Start by examining the patterns of your life, the aim of your habits, and figure out a plan to change those. Well, as Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, he notes a very important principle. It's one thing to hear God's word. It's one thing to know truth about Jesus and say, yeah, you know what? I think that that stuff is true. It's another thing to have those truths affect your life. It's another thing to have habits in your life actually change. So look at Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and the boat and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Just like Paul in Romans, Jesus is not talking about a weak and a strong Christian. He's talking about a Christian and not a Christian. Jesus says we must be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. A sign of genuine saving faith is to hear and to do. Genuine belief in Christ as the Savior of her soul will result in changed habits and a changed life. And so we see again this connection between hearing God's word, thinking about how it should be applied to your life, and then doing it. There's always a connection between thinking and what you think and doing. And a connection between knowing truth, speaking truth to yourself, and setting your mind on God. And God-glorifying habits on a life lived according to the Spirit. So again, I challenge you, spend some time thinking about where your habits are leading you in this life. If you want another little helpful tool that you can do, try looking at how you spend every hour of your day for two or three days this week and evaluate what you did every hour and whether or not you glorified God in what you did. So it's a difficult thing to do sometimes. You might feel exhausted and you feel like you can't have the energy to do it, but it is a helpful thing as you think about wanting to glorify God in everything. You want to set your mind. You want to change how you think. Discern the aim of your habits and start aiming for glorifying God in everything. Well, the second way to take control of your thoughts, to set your mind on God the Spirit, number two, Stay exposed to the Holy Spirit's words. Stay exposed to the Holy Spirit's words. You can go back to Romans 8 if you haven't already. Just like there are two options to build your house in Jesus' parable, there are only two options that Paul gives to set your mind on in Romans 8. We either are a Christian who sets our mind on God, the Holy Spirit, and his words, or we are not Christians, who perhaps are interested in Christian things, interested in Jesus, but who have firmly set our minds on the flesh, who just go with the flow in our flesh, who entertain and cultivate a thought life full of anger, lust, bitterness, etc. Materialism, success at all costs, pride above all, this is one of those famous black and white statements. There's really no nuance in Paul in Romans 8, verse 5 and 6. Read these verses with me. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh, well, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then another contrast. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, there's a duality here. One brings life, the other death. And this death versus life language, it's the same language that's used earlier throughout the book of Romans to describe Christians versus non-Christians. It's very, very clear. I mean, look at Romans 8, 1 and 2. We're just going to look at a couple of these. Go back to Romans 8, 1 and 2. Paul says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 6.23. Go back there, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, verse 7 through 11. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Listen, there's no mincing these words here. If you're dead and pursuing the flesh and pursuing that lifestyle, you are going to be a non-Christian. If you are alive and pursuing a life that honors God, then you are going to be a Christian. Where you set your mind, where your habits are formed, gives you an idea of where you stand with the Lord. So go back to Romans 6, first part of uh, Romans 8, verse 6. It says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And the death here speaks first of physical death, that constant consequence of sin, but it also speaks of eternal punishment that death represents in, in hell. The unbeliever cannot control his thoughts to glorify God. Did you hear what I just said? The unbeliever cannot control his thoughts to glorify God. Now, some of you would hear a statement like that and say, whoa, Pastor Ben, are you saying that no unbeliever can have self-control? No unbeliever can learn to be disciplined in her mind? And then you might be thinking, I know so-and-so who's way more disciplined than I am. That's not Paul's point. In fact, there are many people who are, in spite of their unbelief, have more self-control than us. Many non-Christians have been able to manage more spinning plates than you could ever imagine. The point is not to manage more plates. The point is to manage your plates for the glory of God, not the glory of self. The point is to learn to set your mind on ways to honor God, not satisfy some personal craving or be successful. Controlling your thoughts is ultimately not just about changing some habits and staying focused. It's about glorifying God. That's the distinction. And so where do we need to set our minds? On God as, re as he reveals himself in his word. Look at verse 6 again. If you set your mind on the flesh, it's death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So what does it mean to set your mind on the Holy Spirit? What do you think? What does it mean to set your mind on the Holy Spirit? I want to demystify this concept just a little bit, okay? That doesn't mean that we find a quiet spot with white noise playing in our headphones or sit down in the middle of a forest and try to intersperse moments of prayer with a quiet meditative response where we listen for the still small voice of God, the Holy Spirit. That is not what this means. Nor does it mean that we ask the Holy Spirit to prompt and guide our every single decision that we make, whether or not we eat at this time or that time, whether or not we go to the store at this time or that time. We do not need to do that, and that's not what this is talking about. There isn't much mystery to the Holy Spirit's communication with us. Where does the Holy Spirit communicate with us? In the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. So you want to set your mind on the Spirit Know God's word. See, God tells us that every word contained in our Bibles comes from God the Holy Spirit, that men were moved to write these words, and that God will uh, preserve his word forever. Jesus himself says, not one jot, not one letter will perish. So as we are told that Christians are those who set their minds on the Spirit there's not some mystical element of constantly trying to find out what the Spirit is prompting you to think or say. It means you know God's Word better and better every day. We're faithfully exposed to the Spirit's words contained in the Bible. So, verse 6 says, you are to set the mind on the Spirit as life and peace. I like to think of it, this is a simple, helpful, pithy little phrase. Put yourself in the way of God's truth. Right? 
put yourself in the way of truth. Do everything you can to put yourself in the way of truth. Only rarely does one sermon, one time reading the Bible, one memory verse seem to radically impact your life. That's incredibly rare, if it ever happens. But what does happen is the, and what does create radical life change is the ordinary, regular, mundane exposure to God's word again and again. I find it very helpful to think of five ways that we regularly approach the Bible. And just as we think it's good to eat a balanced diet, so too it's good to have a balanced approach to God's word. And that's why there's, there's five of these. I think it's just really helpful here to intake some from all five biblical intake categories. I'll give them to you here. Number one, read the Bible. Okay, and if you don't like to read, maybe you're not a good reader, that's fine. Listen to the Bible. I think almost everyone in here has a smartphone. Listen to the Bible read to you, okay? Just expose yourself regularly to reading the Bible. It doesn't have to be for 35 minutes every day, but it can. It can be for five minutes every day, but read the Bible. Number two, listen to the Bible taught. Listen to good preaching. This is part of why we come together and gather together on a Sunday morning. God instructs us to listen to the preaching of God's word. And there's something unique that happens when we are all gathered together in the presence of one another, gathered together to listen to God's word being taught and read and explained. There's a unique way that God encourages us to listen to that. But you know what? You also live in a day where you've got tons of great Bible teaching, tons of great sermons out there. Go download some sermons. Go listen to some sermons. That's great. Do that. Expose yourself to God's word. What? Put yourself in the way of truth. Read. Listen. Number three, study. Study the Bible carefully. Study the Bible carefully. Go, go to Pastor Tony's class next time we have it on hermeneutics, on how to approach the Bible, how to study the Bible. What are the basics of thinking about how we study the Bible? Don't do things like the Bible roulette, okay? This is what one of my favorite things that I had some, some people do and show me. Like, you know, when I really need some encouragement from God, I just ask the Holy Spirit to guide me, and I just say, you know, God, please help me, please help me, please help me. First Chronicles chapter 3. Descendants of David. That didn't work that time. You know, like, you know, roulette, right? Like, just you're like, just open it up to something and just hoping that God will show them something really, really good. Don't do that. That's not necessarily helpful. That's not really what God tells you to do, okay? Study the Bible carefully, intentionally, prayerfully, thinking about what you're doing. And, and please avoid that little simple phrase. Oh, you know what? I was reading this week, and this verse means to me, not what's most important about what this verse means to you. What's most important is what this verse means, period, to God. Sure, talk about how this verse applies to you, but thinking and studying about the Bible means you're going to carefully consider what does this verse mean? How has God preserved it for us? Why has he preserved it for us? So read, listen, study. Number four, memorize. Memorization is not just for your children in Awana or young people who are really good at memorizing. Memorization is for all of us. Pick some verses from Romans. There's an app called the Fighterverse app, and you can help, it helps you memorize and get key passages. You could even listen to uh, Matt Schellenberg's Romans chapter 6 song that he did. Remember when he uh, sang that a number of weeks ago? Well, we'll get a recording out to you if you want to listen to Romans 6 and just listen to that. I mean, it'll help you memorize it, right? That stuff helps incredibly. Memorize scripture, okay? Read, listen, study, memorize. And last one, meditate. Meditate. Meditate means to think deeply about verses and how they apply to your life. Not just to study and get exactly at what the meaning means, but to meditate means to think deeply about them and think about how those are going to affect how you live. The point is, Christians put themselves in the way of truth. To set the mind on the spirit is to be spirit-saturated. It is absolutely true that you cannot know God the Savior. You cannot know the gospel apart from the word of God. 
And just as the gospel is communicated through God's word, so too is the gospel applied the more we know him and his word. What, what did Jesus say rooted the wise man's house on the rock? Hearing his words and doing them. Christian, taking control of your thoughts to honor God is marked by exposing yourself to God's word. It doesn't matter if you're 8 or 88. This is something for every Christian at all times. A slow, varied, and constant exposure to God's word helps you take control of your thought life. It helps you speak truth during your trials. It helps guide your goals. Now, when I was in college, uh, Campus Crusade had a couple of very influential tracks that made their rounds on our campus. And one of those, of course, was the Four Spiritual Laws, which was kind of their gospel track. Uh, how many of you guys have heard of that before? All right, yeah, it's, it's a pretty common one. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's decent. It's, uh, I would probably do it slightly different, but it's not bad, right? Well, there's another one that is a little bit more problematic. It's called the Spirit-Filled Life. It was developed by the founder of Campus Crusade called Bill Bright, named Bill Bright. Um, the tract had this idea that there are three types of people in the world. Three types of people. There are those who have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior. And then he gave a picture of self on the throne and Christ outside of your bubble. They've rejected Christ. And then there are those who believe him to be Savior, but who haven't made him Lord of their life. And they would call that person a carnal Christian. And they had the little picture of self on the throne and Jesus sitting at the foot of the throne with you on it. Then the third, there are those who believe Christ to be Savior and follow him as Lord. And that picture, they had Christ sitting on the throne and self at his feet. The tracks would go on to have a lot of helpful tools about what it means to walk by the Spirit, to stay exposed to God's Word, to present every area of your life over to Christ. But I hope you picked up on the critical error, right? There are not three types of people in the world. How many are there? Two. There are those who embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, who are slowly but surely growing towards Christ's exalting habits who are faithfully setting their minds on God's words, who are slowly growing because they are alive compared with the unbeliever who sets the mind on the flesh and self on the throne. And that brings death. There's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian, a carnal Christian. Christ says in Revelation 3.16 that he spews the lukewarm out of his mouth. And a mind set on the flesh, in our passage, Brings what? Death. Beloved, Jesus gives us a category for some who found themselves in church, who perhaps knew his name well. And he says that some of those people on the day of judgment will cry out to him, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. We need to preserve biblical categories. God gave them to us. And so Christians are those who on some level aim to set the mind on things of the Spirit, who live according to the Spirit, who are concerned with obeying God. Why? Look at the end of verse 6. Christians are those who set the mind on the Spirit and his life and peace. Life in Christ brings peace. And this isn't just an inner sense of peace, a calmness in the midst of difficulties. This is peace with God because God is your natural enemy. Yeah, your natural enemy is God. And that brings us to our third way that we take control of our thoughts. Fear disobedience as you would war. Fear disobedience as you would war. So we realize that if we want to learn to direct our thoughts, we start by noticing the habits of our life and aiming our habits to glorify God. And that takes a lot of purposeful thought. 
And then we make sure we are exposed to God, the Holy Spirit's words, so that we will make sure that we are directing our thoughts according to what God wants us to direct them. And last, we consider what we fear and whether or not we cherish peace with God. War, as you know, should be scary. Some of my earliest memories of war was from the first Iraq war in the late 80s and early 90s. I remember watching the little tiny television in our living rooms, probably about this big, getting as close as I could, watching images of war during the nightly news with my dad, of the tanks and the missiles and things like that. I remember drawing tanks and airplanes and desert war scenes in the first and second grade. And war seemed exciting. Maybe even a little bit fun, right? Until you get old enough to hear about war and to hear what war is really like. For many, war is the closest thing to hell on earth. And without Christ, we are at war with God. We are his hostile enemies, constantly pursuing the course of disobedience. Look how Paul describes the one who has set his mind on the flesh in verse 7. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. Remember, this is not a weak Christian. This is an unbeliever because the Christian, the Christian is at peace with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No, this is describing someone who is not a Christian. War language is used for this person. This person who has set his mind on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. And if you set your mind on gratifying the flesh, getting what you want, even trying to be a good person apart from God, then Paul says you are at war with God. And what happens if you are at war with God? Look at verse 7 again. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. See, not submitting to God's law is ignoring what God commands in his words and following your own law instead, making up what you think is best for you. And so the implication is that disobedience clings to the unbeliever like stink to a wet dog. You can't get rid of it. You're going to constantly be disobeying. So why is it that so many Christians are not convinced that carefully obeying God is essential to their life? Why is it that we say we love peace with God but are, are less concerned with carefully obeying God's commands? And I think part of it is it's in the air that we breathe. It's easy to want to be in the world and to be embraced by the world and to be liked by those who don't love Christ. So it's a whole lot easier to demure on disobedience, isn't it? Oh, that's not a big deal. It's a whole lot easier to be unconcerned with holiness. But if you want to learn to take control of your thoughts, to be able to set your mind to glorify God, then start fearing disobedience as you should war. Adults who know war would never want to live it. You're going to want to escape war. How much less war with God? You don't want that. And yet disobedience is too quickly shrugged aside to give preference to what we want. You see, the Christian's life is rightly marked by a holy, reverential fear of God and a fear of disobeying him, not because we have to earn his favor, but because we've set our minds on glorifying him and making sure that the Holy Spirit is not grieved who literally dwells within us. And we've been set free from sin and death and from the morass of muddling about in our own murky impulses. And so therefore, we can hate disobedience as much as we love peace with God. In contrast to the Christian, the unbeliever's life is so marked with disobedience. Paul tells us he's actually unable to do otherwise. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, Paul, what do you mean that they cannot please God, that they cannot obey God's word? I mean, I know some non-Christians who are more honest than some Christians that I know, don't you? And most unbelievers will look at their own life and think, I'm certainly not perfect, but I'm not Hitler either. I do good. I have a sign in my front yard that says kindness, because I try to be kind. What more would God want anyways, right? Let me be clear. One of the most immoral acts that anyone can do is to reject God's glorious gift of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And every day that you live like God is not king, like Christ's substitute death is not necessary for your salvation, every day of active unbelief or simply passively living like God didn't need to send Jesus to die, every day of unbelief is a day living in the worst of sins. And without God's gospel hope, sending Jesus as a perfect substitute, not just death, but he lived a perfect life, the life that we couldn't live. And every day we are to remember that Christ not only lived the life that we couldn't live, but he died a death that we should have died in our place. And God punishes Christ for every sin that you have committed, past, present, and future. And therefore, we stand redeemed and in a right standing with our Lord all because God sent Jesus to be punished in our place and his righteousness is now credited or declared to be ours because he conquered sin and death and rose from the grave. Every day, Christians love that truth. Every day, Christians have that truth affect their life. And without God, the Holy Spirit, doing a powerful work in our hearts, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to believe that message, we're going to be left in our natural state, hostile to God, enemies at war, completely unable to glorify and enjoy God. Even pretty good people set the mind on the flesh and thus earn death. This is the idea of total depravity doesn't mean that all men are as bad as they could be. It means that left to our own flesh, we can never please God. So Paul says very clearly, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As we close, I want us to remember the theme of these verses learning how to set your mind and take control of your thoughts to help you realize why it is that unbelievers are unable to turn to God in their own strength. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in closing. This is going to help us understand not only why unbelievers can't come to faith in, in Christ, but it also helps us understand our own continued struggles. Ephesians 4, we get a description of what kept the old self sold to sin, sold to unbelief, sold to live as if being good on our own terms is all that mattered. Of course, there's no fear of God, no concern with disobeying God's law, but why is there no concern? It's because of the deceitful desires which soothe a guilty conscience and make us think that we're okay when we're not. And so Paul instructs the Christians Ephesians 4, verse 22. He says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through, how is it corrupt through? Deceitful desires. You see, our mind's desires are deceitful. 
They make us think they cannot be controlled, that all we have is just no choice but to get angry in this situation, no choice but to respond in sin, because that's just what my feelings and emotions told me to do, no choice but to close up and just hide in myself. Whatever your sin issue that you struggle with, deceitful desires say, you know, you had no choice. We love to deceive ourselves into thinking that we have no sin, or at least not as much sin as my spouse or child or that no good, horrible boss of yours. We have deceitful desires that say, just a few lustful looks never hurt. You're just doing some research. We have deceitful desires that say, live for the money. We have deceitful desires that say, Sundays are okay for activities that supplant church. We have deceitful desires that lock us into unbelief. They calm the professing Christian into thinking it's fine to not live as Christ is king. But God is clear. Setting the mind on deceitful desires only breeds hostility with God and death. And so Christian, if you are a Christian, you can take control of those old self-deceitful thoughts. You can learn to speak truth to your deceitful desires. What does Ephesians 4.23 say? It gets back to our theme, right? You're to put off the old self and the deceitful desires, and you're to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Change what you fear. Fear God Fear disobeying the commands of the one who designed all of life and knows what is best for his creation. Renew your mind. Don't listen to deceitful desires and stay exposed to God's word so you can speak truth to yourself. As you take control of your thoughts, your emotions, your desires and passions, remember your highest purpose is always to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Thank you for this time that we've had to look into your word and to consider how it is that we should change how we think, how it is that we should address the common problem that we all have of feeling like we just are lost in our thoughts and and can't change how we act or how we think. Lord, help us to address these particular things for your honor and your glory. Help us, Lord, to be purposeful and intentional about our time and our thought life and our habits. Help us to examine our lives so that we can see where we stand and know where we need to address, where we need to work. Lord, thank you for giving us your spirit who has made us new, who's given us life, who's said there's for now no condemnation. And in spite of us being far from perfect, you have said that we have the ability to fight. And so help us, Lord, to stay in that fight every single day so that we can set our minds on the things of the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh. That the habits of our lives would follow and that we would be able to fear you rather than desire to get what we want. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for the challenges that it provides us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.